So when I was in seminary, I went uh, to seminary Gordon-Conwell Seminary, um, North Shore of Boston, and uh, one semester while I was there, I did this internship that was in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, which was about an hour and a half north of where I was living at the time. And because it was such a distance away, I would basically only go up on the weekends, and they had this arrangement so that I would, if I went up like on a Friday, um, I would stay at a different family's house each weekend. And this was terrifying to me since I was uh, very much an introvert to just go into these strangers' homes each week. But it was also really interesting because as I entered into their homes, it was kind of like I was entering into their world for the weekend. And I just kind of got to observe some, you know, how the family dynamics worked. And it started, you know, just like with how they treated me. Um, for some, some of the people when I came, it was like, I was an honored guest, and they had like these kingly meals laid out for me. And they're like, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? I'm like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, they did everything to make sure I was comfortable. Other families were like, hey, we got some leftovers here. You want some leftovers? One place I stayed at, I was staying in a barn. Uh, there was a barn that was kind of partially finished, and they had me staying up on the third la layer of the barn, and so you had to go up one regular set of staircases, uh, staircase, and then you had to go up the spiral staircase to get to this top floor. And there was this like little bunk up there, and it, you know, the, the spiral staircase wasn't finished, so it was, there was no bar on there. So if you just went down, if you got up in the middle of the night and it wasn't thinking straight, you just went all the way down. They also warned me there was bats up there at one point. So, you know, it was just interesting to see how they related to me, but also how they related to one another. You know, if they had kids, how the, how the kids related to one another, how they related to their parents. You know, if they were just a couple, how the, how the couples interacted. It was interesting to see, like, the things that were important to them, the things that they had on their walls. You know, what kind of pictures, what kind of decor, the objects they had on their coffee table. It was interesting to see how they spent their time. You know, some of them wanted, you know, me to hang out with them the whole weekend. Others of them just kind of let me do my thing. And so it was just interesting to kind of enter into their homes for the weekend and just see how different people live and how they interact. I think today as we're looking at the book of First Kings and we enter into the story, I think it's kind of like entering into God's house. We see what's important to him. We see how he operates. And so we're going to look at the First Kings chapter 1. I'm going to read the passage in just a moment. It's a little bit extended passage, but I think it's important we see the whole context. Uh, but I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to, I'm going to kind of summarize what happens, happens in this passage. And then I'm going to kind of, try to kind of look at, like, what does this tell us about how God operates? What does it tell us about how life is in God's house? Uh, before we do that, first of all, why is this important? Why do we need to understand how life works in God's house? Well, years ago, there's a 49-year-old man who was, uh, worked at a German brewery. His name was Erwin Cruz. And he spent his life savings to go to San Francisco, from Frankfurt, Germany, to San Francisco. And so he gets on this plane, headed from Frankfurt to San Francisco, and they stopped in a place called Bangor, Maine, and he's excited to get to San Francisco. Now, he also liked to drink a lot. He worked at a brewery. So he was a little bit groggy, and the flight attendant, she was at the end of her shift, so she gets off the plane, 
and tells him, hey, I hope you enjoy your time in San Francisco. So he thinks he's in San Francisco. So he gets off the plane, goes and finds a cab, and he says, take me, take me into the city. So they take him downtown, he finds a hotel, and for like three days, three kind of mysterious days, he has no idea that he's in Maine rather than in San Francisco. And so he's just going around seeing the sights and everything in that little city. He sees some Chinese restaurants and he thinks, oh, I've seen there's Chinese restaurants in San Francisco. I must be in the right place. One point he hails a cab. He thinks he's maybe in the suburbs of San Francisco. It's not a super big city, so he thinks I'm in the suburbs. So he hails a cab and he says, take me downtown San Francisco. Of course, the cab driver sped away thinking he was crazy. So he just kind of seeing the sights, thinking he's in San Francisco. Finally, he went to a place he was comfortable with, a pub. And he talked to somebody there who happened to know a little bit of German. And then it was eventually discovered that he thought he was in San Francisco. It kind of became a national news story. I mean, but it's amazing you think about it when he thought he was in Maine, or thought he was in San Francisco, but he was on the complete other side of the country thousands of miles away. I think as believers, if we're not careful, if we're not immersed in God's story, maybe we think we know uh, what God is like. We think we're in the right place, but we can be maybe thousands of miles away. And so it's important we know how God operates and that we are in his story. So with that, let's read 1 Kings chapter 1. It says, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought, a, for, they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shumanite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful. She was of service to the king and attended to him, but the, but the king knew her not. Now Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab the son of Zariah and with Abiathar the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shemai and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened calf by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty man of Sol- or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king? And David our Lord does not know it. Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on your throne, on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are speaking with the king, I will also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shumanite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fat, and calf, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king. 
Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be common defenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king, with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fat and calf, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do to this day. <clears throat> then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and say, said, May my Lord, the king, David, live forever. Okay, we'll stop right there. You can feel free to continue reading on um, later today. So what's happening here? Just to summarize, so this opening passage, it's a, quite bizarre. You know, it's this account of David being cold and this woman that's brought to him, and it's a really bizarre passage. Um, but what I think the author is trying to indicate in this passage is um, these words that are used actually have sexual undertones. To wait, lie in your arms, they have sexual uh, undertones. And uh, the text says that the woman who's coming to uh, the king was very beautiful, but he knew her not, meaning he didn't have sexual relations with her. It's a weird way to open up the book of 1 Kings, but I think what the author is trying to show is David's weakness. He's kind of, he's old, he's wasting away. This king who was known for his good looks, his strength, his virility, is, is old and kind of just wasting away. And he's trying to show his weakness. Um, and he goes, the author goes on and shows his weakness where Adonijah is doing all these things, gathering together all these armies, and David just has either no idea or just kind of is, is purposely blind to it. He says he doesn't ask Adonijah why he's doing these things. And so Adonijah sees that David is weak, sees that you know, he doesn't have much, much longer left, and he decides, I'm going to be king. says he exalted himself to be king. And so he gathers people around him. He gathers religious leaders, Abiathar the priest. He gathers Joab, the commander of the king's army. Uh, he gathers these chariots and these forces around himself uh, so that he will be king. And uh, his goal is probably after David dies that he's going to usurp the throne. And, of course, not everyone goes along. Nathan and some other people, uh, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, don't go along with this. And so they go to David and say, David, you promised that Solomon was going to be king. David doesn't know any of this is happening. David doesn't know that Adonijah is exalting himself. And so then David kind of puts in the machinery so that Solomon would eventually come, become king. And then later in the chapter that we didn't read, Adonijah is terrified. And so he flees to the altar. And then Solomon, in his wisdom, says, okay, so if Adonijah shows himself faithful, if he's a good, righteous person, I'm going to let him live. If not, I'm going to put him to death. 
So it's kind of an interesting passage, an interesting way to open up the book of 1 Kings, but I think it shows us a few things about God's house and how life operates in God's house. The first thing it shows us is that God's blessings are given, not taken. God's blessings are given, not taken. Uh, Adonijah sees an opening. The text again says he exalted himself. He says, I will become king. And he puts together all the forces he thinks that are necessary for him to become king. He gets the military on his side. He gets religious leaders on uh, his side. And deep down, I know that Adonijah knew that he wasn't to be the king. He knew he was usurping a throne that wasn't his. The reason we know that is because when he threw this feast, brought all these people together, he didn't include one person, one of the king's sons, Solomon. Most likely is because he knew Solomon was supposed to be the king. He was the rightful king. David doesn't know about this. Uh, Again, and that's probably intentional. Adonijah is probably trying to be a little bit stealthy. He's not going to David. He plans after David passes away, then he's going to have a coup. Now, again, he could have gone to David and said, hey, who do you want to be king? He could have asked him, would you anoint me to be king, father? But he doesn't do that. He tries to take the throne for himself. He tries to initiate a coup. And this is interesting, especially given David's response to the kingship. Remember uh, back in the book of Samuel how Saul was the king and Saul uh, led the people in idolatry and and God said uh, that he's going to bring about this new king and David was the man who was chosen after God's heart. And then David was anointed king by Samuel, but then there was some time in between where Saul was still the king and David was kind of on the run. And David had many opportunities to kill Saul. He knew that he was the rightful king, he was anointed by God, and he could have taken the throne and killed Saul, but he chose not to do that, and and he said, how can I kill God's anointed? And so you see this contrast between Adonijah, who is not anointed king, has no right to the kingship, who's trying to usurp the throne, gathering all the forces together, trying to uh, gather it by his own might, and then you have David on the other hand who was the rightful king, who was anointed by God, and yet he says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to take this kingship into my hands. I'm not going to kill Saul when I have the opportunity. When God's ready for me to have this kingship, I'm going to have it. But I think that human beings, I think we all tend to be more like Adonijah than David. We want to take things into our own hands rather than waiting for God to act. We see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. God gives them everything. He's this good, perfect Heavenly Father. He walks with them in the cool of the day. He gives them all of these uh, fruit trees to eat from. And yet there's one tree he says not to eat from. And what do Adam and Eve do? So we we got to take that. we got to be like God. we got to know good and evil. And so they take from that one tree that they're not permitted to take from. We have this tendency to try to take the blessings of God rather than receiving them as gifts from God. So my wife loves Christmas, and she got me some really nice Christmas gifts this year. And before Christmas, she had hid them up in our office in, uh, in the closet. Now, our house now isn't very big, and so she warned me, don't go in that closet. And so I went up there, and of course, I was interested in you know, what was in there. You know, I was curious, 
But I never really thought about actually opening the door and looking what was inside. But imagine I would have. Imagine I would have gone into that closet, taken the wrapping paper off, just opened everything, and one thing I got was a pole saw. So imagine I took that pole saw, put it together, and then Stephanie sees me outside with that pole saw that she got me for Christmas. Probably wouldn't make her feel very good. But the object would have been the same. I would have enjoyed it the same. It's the same object. I enjoyed receiving it. But it really wasn't as much about the the object. It was about the relationship. It was the fact that it was a gift. And if I would have taken it myself, it would have no longer been a gift. And it would have harmed that relationship. And I think the same thing is true with God. Sometimes we want to take the blessings of God. It's like, God, give me this, give me this, give me this. God's like, I want a relationship with you. It's not just about me giving you things. I want a relationship with you. But I think it's easier sometimes to try to take the blessings of God rather than receive them as gifts because when we take, we're in control. When we receive, God is in control. And yet God wants us to have this posture of receiving his gifts. What does Jesus call us to do? He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says all the Gentiles, they seek these things. I need to find food. I need to find shelter. I need to find all these things and, and take hold of all these things so that I'll be secure. And Jesus says, I know you need those things. I know they're important, but seek my heart. Seek my kingdom, and then I'll give you all those things that you need. And the thing that's ironic is when we seek a relationship with God, oftentimes he gives us those blessings. And I've, I've heard variations of similar kind of story from several different people, you know, where someone will, you know, want something really badly. You know, maybe it's they want to be married or they want to have a child or they want to be financially at some place or some goal, you know, and they want it really, really bad. And they're going for it with all of their heart. And no matter what they do, they just keep hitting dead ends. And sometimes this happens for years. And then they get to a point where they're like, okay, if God doesn't give me this, I'm going to be okay. If God chooses not to bless me with this particular thing, I'm going to be all right. And they choose to just follow after God, seek his heart. And then what's interesting is oftentimes after they start doing that, not always, but a lot of times God gives them exactly what they were asking for. But he's like, I'm not this cosmic gumball machine. I want a relationship with you. And yes, I want to bless you. Yes, I want to give you good gifts. But most of all, I want your heart. So my, uh, I put my son in the car seat the other day. And uh, as I was putting him in the car seat, he saw this little garbage truck on the floor. And he sees it and he said, garbage truck, garbage truck. And so I'm like, you can have the garbage truck, but you got to ask nicely for it. You got to say, Daddy, please give me the garbage truck. He says, no. I'm like, come on, Polly. I want to get here. Here it is. You can have it. Just ask me nicely. No. So this just went on for a while. I'm like, all right, Paul, you know, if you're not going to ask nicely, you're not going to get the garbage truck. You know, and I, 
think about that, and it's like, I really wanted to give him the garbage truck. I really wanted him to have it. But I wasn't going to give it to him when he was asking like that because as a father, i got to teach him what's right. And I think the same thing is true with God. God longs to give us good gifts. He longs to bless us, but if we're coming at it with the wrong heart, he's not going to give it to us. And I wonder how many blessings we've missed out on because we're just coming to God with the wrong attitude. We're trying to take the blessings of God rather than receiving them as good gifts. Our God is a good and perfectly heavenly Father, longs to give us good gifts. He says, Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 7. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a servant? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God longs to bless us. He's a God of blessing. But he's not going to bless us if we're trying to take those blessings in our own strength. He gives them as a good, perfect Heavenly Father. That's the first thing I think this passage shows us about our Heavenly Father, what life is like in God's house. The second thing is that the Father blesses people who are unworthy. The Father blesses people who are unworthy. From an earthly standpoint, Adonijah would be the one that people would choose to be king. Text tells us he was very handsome. Text tells us he was second, he, he was the, the oldest male child surviving for King David. He was the person that, that man would have chosen. Apparently, he was quite charismatic that he was able to kind of gather all of these people together for this purpose of trying to secure the kingship. Then, on the other hand, you have Solomon. Remember how Solomon's story begins. David is supposed to be out at war leading his battles, leading his soldiers, and instead he's out watching a woman take a bath uh, on the uh, top of the building. He feels he has to have her as his wife. He not only commits adultery with her, but has her husband put to death. This sets about a, a really dark period for David. He loses his first son from that union. And then his second son is Solomon. And you think about that, and really, to put it bluntly, he's kind of the result of a mistake. And yet God is like, yep, that's the one that's going to be my king. And more than that, he says, yep, that's the one that's going to be in the line of the Messiah, in the line of Christ. And it's, Solomon isn't the only one that God used. You know, you look at the, the genealogy of Jesus, and you look at the different people in that genealogy is described in Matthew chapter 1. And you have some people of ill repute. You have people like Rahab, prostitute. God has this history of blessing people who are unworthy. He blesses people with a checkered past, people that we would never expect. That's why Jesus speaks words of hope to tax collectors and sinners. And speaks words of judgment to the religious leaders of his day. You think about the story of the prodigal son. You know, you think about the, the younger son who uh, asked for his inheritance, basically asked his father, saying, I, I wish you were dead. Just give me what's mine. Give me my stuff. The father gives it to him. He goes and wastes all of his possessions, all of his father's inheritance. Then he decides, I'm going to come back home. I'll be my father's servant. And what does the father do? The father sees him in the distance, runs after him, throws a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger. Decides he's going to kill the fattened calf. 
you know, meat wasn't, uh, wasn't like we have it today. It, it was uh, scarce back then. It was really a treat. They had been probably waiting, fattening up this cat for months or maybe even years. Everything that he does is an expression of extravagance. I mean, it's no wonder that the older brother was angry because the father had lavished so many blessings on this young, younger brother who was so undeserving. But that's how the father operates. He operates according to grace. So the father chooses people who are unworthy. Finally, we see in this passage, the father's blessings are given based upon a promise. Bathsheba goes to David and appeals to him based upon a promise. David had promised her that Solomon would become king. And then Solomon was then installed as king, and it was based upon a promise. We serve a God who makes promises, and then in the interim we have to kind of live by faith, and then he's faithful and fulfills those promises. And we see that throughout Scripture. We see that uh, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, after the fall, uh, uh, God speaks to Adam and Eve and talks about the, the fact that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Speaking of the time when Christ would come and save his people from their sins. Uh, he comes to Abraham, makes a promise to him, says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And after Abraham's descendants find themselves in slavery, God comes to Moses and tells Moses to speak these words to Israel, words of promise. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Then look at the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." I think what's interesting about the promise specifically that was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God knows, that God knew right after he made this promise, uh, David is going to fall into that sin with Bathsheba. He knows that David is going to fail. He knows that David is going to incite God's anger by uh, performing a census at the end of the book of 2 Samuel. He knows that David is going to fail. And yet he makes the promise anyways. It says you're going to, your, your kingship, your kingly line is going to continue forever. He knows that Solomon, David's son, is going to fail. He knows that Solomon is going to lead the people into idolatry for a time. And yet he makes these promises anyways. We serve a God who makes promises, gives blessings based upon those promises. For those of us who are believers, what promises do we have? As believers, we see the end. We see that Jesus was the one who was promised to Adam and Eve, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. We see that Jesus is the one who was kind of prefigured in the Exodus wanderings, in the, in the rescue from Egypt. The, 
Jesus is the one who brings freedom. Jesus is the true, perfect, just king, the heir to David's throne. And Jesus fulfills all of these promises to us. Jesus is all of these things. But I think the promise that is given to us, the most important promise that's given to us in the scriptures is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers and is the guarantee that God is redeeming us. Because we have the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say it's a down payment or a seal that God is redeeming us, that God is going to one day raise us to new life. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22. It says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. So what that basically is saying, all of those promises like I talked about to, to Adam and Eve, to the Israelites, to David, they all find their yes in Christ. But then he continues, Paul continues, it says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He's put his seal on us. He's anointed us. Just like David was anointed king before he became king, just like promises were made to Abraham, promises were made to Adam and Eve, God makes these promises to us that one day he's going to come back and take us to be with him forever. And he gives us the Holy Spirit as kind of the down payment, the seal, the evidence that he's redeeming us. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the promise that future blessings await us because of our faith in Christ. So three things about the Father's house this passage shows us. The Father's blessings are given, not taken. The Father blesses people who are unworthy. The Father's blessings are given on the basis of a promise. So how do we sum all of these things up? How do we put them all together? I think we put them all together this way. The Father's house operates according to grace. The Father's house operates according to grace. Now we're at the beginning of a new year. And uh, as we think about the new year, we often think about, you know, things we want to change. We have maybe resolutions, or if we don't have resolutions, we're just like, oh, I just want to work on this. I want to be healthier. I want to, you know, be more faithful in my uh, study of God's Word or prayer or whatever the case may be. You know, we have all these things that we want to work on. But I think this passage is a reminder that before we resolve to do things, we need to rest in what God has done for us. Before we decide we're going to do things for God, we need to rest in what God has done for us. We need to be kind of saturated, our hearts need to be saturated by the love of Christ and by the grace of Christ. And that gives us the fuel to keep fighting, to change. Uh, there's a man by the name of Samuel Johnson, literary giant, and he wrote this in his journey, uh, journal in 1738. He said, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, he wrote this, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. He wrote that prayer, some variation of that prayer, every single year. Finally, in 1775, 30 year, 38 years later, after his first resolution, he wrote this, he says, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair 
is criminal. Trying and failing. It's an all-too-common struggle. We try and we fail. And so this year, before we try, let's rest in the house of grace. Before we resolve to do for Christ, let's resolve to recognize what Christ has done for us. Let's seek God's heart first. Allow Him to transform us. Allow Him to give us the strength to change in areas that maybe we can't change on our own. There's an old story about a husband and wife who didn't get along very well at all, and I can certainly understand why from the the, the wife's perspective. They didn't love each other at all, and the husband was extremely demanding. He had this list of kind of requirements that he had for his wife. These were, you know, silly, crazy things, like requirements of what time she would get up, requirements for uh, how his food was going to be prepared, when his food was going to be prepared, how the housework was going to be done. It was never a good relationship, and I think you can understand why. Several years later, her husband passed away. After, she, after her husband passed away, in, in time, she met somebody else, and they were married. This husband was completely different. This husband loved her with all of his heart. He did everything that he could to make her life easier. Did anything he could to make her happy. Always blessed her with tokens of appreciation and thankfulness. One day, she was cleaning the house. She found tucked in a drawer the list of commands, requirements her first husband had given to her. As she looked looked it over, It dawned on her that even though her present husband had never given her any kind of list, any kind of demands, she was doing almost everything her first husband's list required. She realized she was so devoted to this man that her deepest desire was to please him out of love, not out of obligation. Love changes us. Grace changes us. And the Father's house operates according to grace. And so as we enter this new year, let's have resolutions. Let's change those areas of our lives that need to be changed. But let's first resolve to reside in the house of grace and bask in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your incredible, unmatchless grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, while we were broken, you sent your son to die on the cross for us so that we might have life. We thank you, Lord, that you're a good and perfect Heavenly Father who longs to give good gifts to your children. We thank you that you're a Father who chooses to bless people who are unworthy because we know that we are all unworthy. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, as we enter into this new year, Lord, change us. Lord, the areas of our lives that need resolve, need resolution, allow those things to be changed. But Lord, we know that we can't change without you. That we love you because you first loved us. The only hope of change that we have is basking in your matchless, unchangeable love for us. Lord, as we enter in this new year, help us to dwell in your house of grace. And as we dwell there, allow it to change our hearts and transform us into the people you want us to be. In Christ's name I pray, amen.